0: Welcome
1: to the New Books Network.
0: Good morning. Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Piotr Kuczycki. I'm a professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park, and today it is my great privilege and pleasure to host uh, on the program uh, one of the great names in the profession uh, Peter Brown, a former professor of mine from uh, my graduate school days at Princeton University. Uh, Peter Brown is uh, the author most recently of Journeys of the Mind, A Life in History, which appeared this year with Princeton University Press, uh, 2023, and will be discussing this book. Briefly, Peter Brown is the Philip and Beulah Rollins Professor Emeritus of History at Princeton his many authored volumes include works such as treasure in heaven through the eye of a needle the ransom of the soul the rise of western christendom the body and society the cult of the saints the world of late antiquity augustine of hippo a biography and many volumes as well that i haven't named perhaps more than any other single scholar this should be obvious to anyone in the audience who's been paying attention to the profession over the past half century, Professor Brown has defined the shape of historical inquiry into late antiquity, and we'll be discussing that at some length today. And he is the recipient of numerous honorary degrees, as well as a MacArthur Fellowship, a Guggenheim, the, Mac- the Mellon Foundation's Distinguished Achievement Award, and the Kluge Prize, of the Library of Congress. Please forgive the overly long introduction, uh, Professor Brown. Peter welcome to our program
1: Piotr thanks you for this very generous introduction as long as you don't maneuver me into being in sage mode <laughs> i'm very happy to answer any quick 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 quick, quick questions that you might want to uh, to ask me
0: Well, that's very kind, and thank you again for agreeing to speak about your book. Obviously, this book covers a substantial, although not complete, but substantial span of your life. Uh, It's a capacious title, Journeys of the Mind, A Life in History. Uh, If I might simply start by asking uh, the title itself, Journeys of the Mind, when I was reading the book, I my attention was drawn to an, an, a, a similar phrase, journeys of the heart, roughly halfway through the book, where you began to talk about, it, this, the, the, the context was Islam and your travels in Iran and your encounters with Islam as lived religion. But I'm curious more generally, if you could elaborate on the choice of title. Uh, the mind clearly entangles for you it may sound somewhat uh, sentimental to say, but clearly it's accurate uh, with the heart and with the spirit and with so many other uh, dimensions that transcend scholarly inquiry. If you look back at this book, do you feel like it's principally a story of your emergence as a scholar or is it far more than that?
1: I think, I, I think, Piotr, this raises a very interesting point, anyone who writes an autobiography under the shadow of having written a book on Augustine of Hippo is likely to to find himself exposed to being compared with that truly great work. And I was determined that this should not be so. Absolutely determined that no, it would be simply a historiographical essay of how the field has developed and how I contributed to it. I thought that was relatively easy because I had already done quite a few historiographical essays that place the work of my colleagues and myself in, a, in their overall perspective. Many of the books that I had written, like Augustine of Hippo, like um, Body and Society, like the article on The Rise and Function of the Holy Man, I felt I could give them an intellectual genealogy and background. Then as I worked harder... (laughs) I found that wasn't what I was actually doing. What I was doing much more was actually, in fact, journeys of the heart as well as of the mind. And it, I felt this more and more because what I really wanted to get across was that... In a huge field such as, they, as they, and they say, heavily loaded with very venerable and self-confident stereotypes, one had to what one had to really analyze in oneself was what kept you going. Who, what were the books that truly inspired you? Who were the people who truly inspired you? And what were the themes and discoveries which gave you the wish to continue? Augustine, being a rather bleak in his estimate of the human world, regarded one of the greatest miracles of God's grace that people persevered at all. And I would very much want Journeys of the Mind to be also Journeys of the Heart in the sense that their are explanation of why certain books and not others, which might have been just as good, but certain books and not others, certain teachers, mentors, friends, colleagues, and others um, really gripped you and brought you through the very difficult business of researching on what is, after all, a very distant and still nowadays highly contested period. So I ended up a little bit more like Augustine than I had intended to, and I like to think that is an improvement.
0: Well, I, I, I was actually struck a moment ago by your uh, <laughs> return to the, the, the bleakness in Augustine, in the sense that there is not a chapter in your book, in Journeys of the Mind, that I would describe remotely in this way. And this, in spite of the fact that, first, obviously, you cover a tremendous amount of uh, chronological ground within your own lifetime, obviously, or it's if you reflect on World War Two, you reflect on the division of Europe, you reflect also on the coming of uh, the Iranian Revolution, you talk about this is obviously a, a, a something wonderful, the archaeological revolution, but it's bookended by two very dark events that you describe in the Middle East. On the one hand, the Iranian revolution. On the other, the coming of ISIS uh, in the 2000-teens. Uh, and yet, despite the fact that, I, I, I could add, I suppose, to that list, I was reading about your father's work in Sudan and thinking about well now frankly uh that uh the the civil war that you were invoking from the latter decades of the 20th century well sudan once again torn apart i don't really feel that at all reading the book i there's it's it's there's a sense of uh of of optimism and a sense of, I think, maybe confidence is the wrong word, but a sense of, uh, of, of of sort of spiritual progress, if I may put it this way, that accompanies your intellectual trajectory. I'm wondering if now that the book is finished, and you've published it, uh, you feel still sanguine about the uh, backdrops, As such, and the fact that you've managed to tell what is, I I I think quite a a remarkably positive story overall, in spite of the fact that one could easily argue that our world is crumbling or at least (laughs) threatens
1: to (laughs) in so many ways, as Augustine's was. Well, uh, there is one one aspect of this which, of course, is fair is. Very obvious. If your main academic activity since one was a very very young undergraduate human, when I made contact with the great works through 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 books alone of Henri Irene Maru, of Santo Mazzarino, if one of one's main agendas has been to modify a catastrophist view of the end of the Roman Empire. I would feel it was, in some ways, a little bit inconsistent if I simply allowed that catastrophism, which I was demolishing in the distant past, to hold sway over my imagination and my mind and that of my students in the present. I always find that when people ask, What caused the road the end of the Roman Empire? They would always, I would always ask back, what do you think is wrong with your own society? And almost invariably they will give as an answer the same causes for their own discontents as for the Roman Empire. And as my business was to disengage the reality of the Roman past, and the reality of the capacity for rebirth, for recreation, for the adoption of new ways of seeing things, to really make a plea to observe those aspects. I was not going to be a prophet of doom in modern times, no matter how much many Many developments do do indeed appall one, and many future scenarios are one which you wish heartily were not there. But I think one has a duty as a scholar to introduce a period, particularly a period in the very distant past, a period also where many aspects of human life were not those which are valued or valorized by modern Western Europeans. If one has a duty to make sense of that world, one I think has a duty also to make sense of one's own world in terms of looking out, not for the silver lining in clouds, but for those seeds from which new things might indeed grow and i very much hope that one of the one of the one of the take homes i think one says of the book is that life keeps on keeping on and you have to look for where the small seeds grow.
0: This may be the right moment, since you mentioned where the small seeds grow, to go back to your own childhood and youth, which I actually was really delighted, and and, and confess to some surprise, actually, at the space that you devoted uh, early on in the book as you had mentioned, this is not a historiographical essay in book form, not not at all. And I really appreciated enormously both the 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 thick description of uh, your childhood as uh, uh, an Irish Protestant, uh, but by the same token, not non Ulster based Irish Protestant. But by the same token, also the Irish protestant identity in dialogue with what you call always in quotation marks abroad and this notion of a lived as well as imagined life abroad or existence abroad structuring what it meant for you to understand yourself as you were growing up if i may simply ask because for those in the in in our audience who haven't uh, read the book yet uh, could we perhaps? Could I? Could could I ask you to say maybe a few words uh, about what you feel? And I apologize if it is a somewhat essentialist question. Perhaps the answer can't be given quite cleanly to the to to this question, but I'll try nonetheless. It really, is Irish about your trajectory, or is it? Is that perhaps not the point at all? The point is that there was something about the. Confluence of elements in your own Irish childhood that lent itself to the kind of trajectory that you subsequently pursued.
1: Yes, I, that's a very good question, Piotr, and I'll answer it as best as best um, uh, as best um, I can. Um, first of all, when I again began to write, I did not expect at all. To, to need to write about my family's long distant background. I was encouraged to do so and actually startled into doing so when I received from a distant cousin in Yorkshire, of whom I knew nothing whatsoever, a package of letters that will reveal themselves to be letters written at the time of Lord Nelson's Battle of Trafalgar, as this country Protestant family, with their house in the west of Ireland, sent a 12-year-old boy to fight as a missionary and to collect prize money in the Battle of Trafalgar. And I said, that is what abroad means. It's the way in which you combine a highly local identity in Ireland as a, as a country. One could always, almost use the word squireen, a small country landowner, always at this time, immensely prolific. Families of up to 10 daughters and sons daughters who must find dowries, sons who must find careers. Um, Filling up the world and needing this, basically, not an escape route, but needing this wider background. And I think what I would call particularly Irish wasn't only the sociological situation, where you have a basically potentially impoverished gentry, always potentially, usually saved, a potentially impoverished gentry who are usually set on their feet, not through going to England, but to going to the British Empire, not through adopting necessary English. Liberal metropolitan values, but more identifying with the armed forces that gave them a wider world. And I think it's that combination, the ease with which the Irish, Catholic or Protestant, have always faced the prospect of the other, the wider world. So when I wrote about uh, abroad, I certainly wrote about it as the clue to a highly distinctive Protestant identity, but not to an exclusive um, identity. And that perhaps one of the great contributions of Irish to the world at large nowadays is that it is and has been a very vivid emigre country emigre culture, and that, alas, those people who are now forced into emigration, much as as the average Irishman of the 19th century was also forced into emigration, how they will find find a, a place of rest to which they can contribute. Magnificently.
0: I confess, while, while reading the the Irish portion of your, I mean, actually, the 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 Irish story weaves in and out, really, of so much of the book. Uh, not to not to bring my own interest in, but but another country that has produced so many immigrants and has been the product of <laughs> sort of imperial displacement, but in in similar ways. My own background, Poland, right? With all the Poles who have been in the service of the Ottoman Empire, the Lajos <laughs> Kosuth, we could make we could make a very long list. But it strikes me that this question uh, that 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 you raise quite early on of the appreciation for, uh, I mean, I, I think you refer to it as a literary spirit at various points early on in the book. But this appreciation for uh, literary culture or more generally for literature and the arts, irrespective of education, formal or otherwise, irrespective of uh, economic uh, standing or social class. And that seems something As you go deeper into your story, you return to that, whether it's through the uh, insertion of a quotation from Yeats or whether there are various ways in which that literary spirit becomes clear. So I I I wanted to ask you by way of sort of uh, uh, framing the longer trajectory of the Irish element of your story, to what extent do you think that the literary Tradition or the literary appreciation that you took from childhood and adolescence uh, had to carry a certain appreciation for the past. You talk about acknowledging the past as past uh, thanks to your lessons at Shrewsbury, but I also feel that in your own childhood prior to beginning uh, the, the schooling experience there.
1: Oh, I think there you're entirely right because I, I really do feel that the one thing which in, in modern con- conditions, and here I'm talking about modern general conditions as well as university conditions, I find a sense of the past a truly precious thing. And any attempt to weaken that sense of the past is, to me, truly abhorrent because I think it really does give people that extra country. It is the opening to alternative forms of being being themselves. And in that sense, a love of the past, in my case since I was truly a child, very much brought up in a tradition of Victorian historical novels, for instance. These things which one might sort of sniff at nowadays were truly, truly nurtured one, truly gave you a sense that beyond the normal cramped circumstances of a small boy in basically a small, neutral country during the war, which made it more, more paradoxical, on the never poor, but always on the edge of poverty, that it is this sense of the past, which gave, which gave, I think, the word dignity is the word one, sh- one, one, sh- one should use. Many people who were truly poor, many people on the edge of poverty, living in basically in wartime Ireland, in, a cr- in cramped conditions, managed to fall back on the, pa- on the past as... A reserve as a, how to put it, as a nourishing reserve of the imagination. Now, this is very different from the strident, bigoted use of the past, which alas has become so common even in Western Europe against all our most hopeful expectations to preserve a sense of the past as a sense of enrichment is i hope one of the main (laughs) paycombs of of the book
0: it certainly is from my reading i would also add that this particularly comes through in the story of your undergraduate trajectory at Oxford, all the way through the Also's Fellowship, in the sense that you're quite clear that the norm and expectation at Oxford, 1953, 1954, five, six, was to perform grown-up history. Again, I like the quotation marks that you use around the phrase grown-up. And for those familiar with mid 20th century Britain in in the audience, we're we're talking about careers into the civil service, the the sort of Oxbridge trajectory of of reading and then having one's path assured to play a role in in public affairs. And you bucked that trend from the very beginning, Uh, not that you couldn't do it you simply preferred to seek your own paths elsewhere and it seemed like a quite risky is perhaps not the right word but very much like unknown terrain or or far very 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 seldom trod terrain uh, uh for for the historian the aspiring historians at oxford so if, if i might ask you uh how, what was the key to resisting grown-up history? Uh, obviously, you, we know your interests, religion, ideas, social practice, uh, the moral economy, but but grown-up history suffused your world. Did it, it seem like an uphill battle, like you were simply a, a maverick doing your reading and that was it?
1: Well, it's... it's it... Actually, I should, in all honesty, I should give two answers, and you'll have to work out how they come together. Very well. (laughs) The the first answer is, of course, as as any late adolescent, we're talking about very young persons, don't forget. They aren't as old as we are, though we hope to remain as young as they were. Um for any young person defining himself, it was obviously an uphill, an uphill battle, partly because it was a battle at the very top of the of the as far as actual scholarship goes and teaching skills go, Oxford was the was the top. It knew itself to be the top, but it also, to a large degree, was the top. So there was, if there was a a stone which I had to push uphill, it was indeed a very heavy stone. On the other hand, and this I think is important, Oxford, precisely because of its highly personalized tutorial system, precisely because of its lack of strong strong um of strong faculties, precisely its lack of Altmeister of dominating learned figures who would dominate their graduates, as Dr. Fachten, as heads of French um équipe, was a remarkably gave one a lot of a lot of maneuvering room, and of course placed at one's dispense Disposition, unbelievable resources of of erudition, which you were left to interpret your own way. So it was a, it was as often the case, in particular, case of a young person entering a well-established institution. A combination of suffocating, conformity, which I called Tweedy Philistinism. I, I, I really relish that phase, and it, it was certainly there. On the other hand, the ways of getting away from it were also there. And I think, I hope, in my account of Oxford, I did justice to the two sides of the story. It's easy to write a history of one's academic youth as either a history of continued success or a history of continued fr- fr- frustration. Frustration, ego contra mundum, but the truth was actually more complicated.
0: In the spirit of, of giving uh, or proceeding in along multiple trajectories simultaneously, I, I, I reading the Oxford story, I, I, I had to keep. I mean, I, obviously, I'm familiar with the 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 history of the of the Oxford tutorial system and to a certain extent, the tutorial system still exists in a way that distinguishes uh, virtually. I, I mean, I, 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 I did my undergraduate work in the United States, but for most places right now uh, in North America and in Western Europe, there would be a a, a, a different experience. On the other hand, it's quite familiar from uh, Eastern Europe, I have to say. And from the years when I taught in Eastern Europe <laughs> on a Fulbright, for example, that was exactly <laughs> the experience I had with a smattering, uh, exe- except that there were some, some mandatory lectures or, or seminars for the students. But the what I wanted to ask you before I return to Oxford in a different sense is how you can look back on that system from the perspective of the 21st century and now they how, having now also spent half a century in the U.S., higher education system uh, and assess or or put yourself back into the experience, obviously you were both student and then tutor, so you saw it from both sides of the table. But it is such a dramatic difference. And you seem to give a fairly balanced appraisal of it, although I as a US undergraduate very often sought more opportun- more freedom simply to focus and to specialize and I remember getting advice all the time, take your time remember, this is your opportunity to explore multiple directions, which is of course impossible in the context of your own trajectory as you're describing it from the 1950s
1: Yes I, I, now, 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 now this Piotr raises a very important issue which is partly the journeys of my mind, but also journeys through specific academic environments. And I very much hope that people will take away from the book a sense of the real contours of what Oxford was like, of what Berkeley was like, in, even if it's only in crudely institutional terms. I was very much concerned that it should not be treated as a lonely battle, as if there was no, no institutions involved. It's the, it's the play between individual and institution in its different forms. Now, I myself am a, a plainly benefited greatly from the Oxford tutorial and the high level of specialization. On the other hand, what I came to admire immediately in in Berkeley was the freedom, the freedom given ultimately by the elective course system, which is the great relic in American academe of the Scots Enlightenment, that their notion of the democracy of the, of the intellect. That, that any young person can and indeed should be interested in more than one thing, and if possible in science as well as in the humanities, or if within the humanities within very different sides of the humanities, that fr- that that freedom. It struck me it, by a strange congruence. It struck me very much as like. Learning how to sort of drive on the freeways of Berkeley and San Francisco and Los Angeles, these enormous multi lane freeways where we can zigzag in and out, go off, come back in, change lane. And this was what my students were doing the whole time. They were not preparing for a single undergrad, for a single great examination. They were actually. One didn't use the word at this time. They were surfing. They surfed the campus. And I, quite frankly, although this can often be identified with superficiality and lack of sérieux, I didn't find that. I felt it really gave both graduate students and undergraduate students a sense that they were free to make their own lives. And if they're free to make their own lives, they better do it properly so there was ultimately that level of professionalization which struck me in berkeley as it has struck me in princeton and elsewhere and that accounts for my loyalty to the american system for all its its weaknesses and many of these weaknesses are coming to 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 this the, the, the to the, the surface one has to be honest about what it actually gave one and it gave one i think freedom thank you very much
0: yeah it, it's quite clear I, I i suppose the 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 the, the this the It is inspiring to think that one can find that freedom in multiple versions, in multiple structures, in multiple designs of the education system. There is one particular point, which I would like to to press a bit, if I may. And it's something that I've always been fascinated. I've been told many times that I have a facility for languages, but facility doesn't translate into the space to pursue seriously and systematically in the kind in a way that I would like, right? I've studied Italian. It was eventually uh, somewhat supplanted by French. When I try to speak Spanish, I end up speaking Italian sometimes. Uh, You are, I I think, uh, please, hopefully you you, you won't take offense if I say this, you are quite a legend uh, as a a polyglot uh, 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 for your mastery of languages. And I wonder if you would credit, I mean, obviously, Every individual has their own capacity and their own methods for pursuing uh, this study. But the serious study of a base of knowledge that integrates, as yours does, so many different geographies and so many different traditions does seem to require a great deal of time. And I ask this partly out of self-interest because I found, as I've gotten older, that that kind of disciplined time, I sometimes blame the digital revolution, but that may be cheap on my part. <laughs> how did you find the time to pursue, or how did you organize, is perhaps the better way of saying it, the time to pursue the different languages and toolkits, tool sets, so seriously and systematically?
1: Well, I'm glad I've been made into an legend, because legends are what inspire people. But as we know, lessons are not always a reality. In terms of linguistic achievement, one thing which I think is important, there's a great difference between languages which you engage in often in one's early youth, such as I think you and I appear to probably share Latin and French as simply a humus. So much so that when people ask you, I I found it was most embarrassing in Berkeley when I had to teach Augustine's Latin as a text. I realized that although I knew it almost by heart, I couldn't analyze it because it was like a sort of second language to me. It was like being asked, how do you analyze English phrases? Now, that is reached by just sheer repetitiveness maybe French and Latin. Greek is more of an adventure. The other ones, one must remember, one must here, I think, avoid a false perfectionism. Yes, it is important, truly important, that people should know other languages. It is shameful that they don't know other European languages for the simple reason that if they don't know them, They can't partake in the scholarly debate. And as scholarship is an endless debate, this is what my my mentor, Arnaldo Momiliano, really taught me that scholarship is not a set of orthodoxies, not a set of stable scientific proof, stable scientific results. It is a constant dialogue. And if you aren't in on the dialogue, and by being in, you I really do mean being in. That is, when one reads Maru, you don't just simply read the author of a study of the Latin of the Latin culture of Augustine. You're also reading the work of an engagé Catholic of the 1930s. You're reading a whole person. Books must become persons. And you can only do that if you could actually read them. Now, that sounds very demanding, which does mean, obviously, rather, rather, sadly, there are great linguistic zones, such as Eastern European languages, Russian, which are not easily available. And one just has to sort of live with that, do the best to sort of overcome. Um, But one must avoid a false perfectionism. G.K. Chesterton once said, in a very, in a rather naughty mood, if anything worth doing, it's worth doing badly. And I find that with the more difficult languages, I have no hope other than through a brain transplant of achieving perfect Arabic. Persian, Syriac, Ethiopic, but there's nothing wrong with trying. And the actual metaphor I used after talking about my learning as much Hebrew in all its periods as I could um, was that of a door left on the latch, I think is the American, that is a door half open, which you can push if you need to. And I've certainly found that I have had periods where I have indeed been engaging with these more recondite oriental languages, partly as part of, part of one's job. And I also do think that if one studies late antique christianity one simply has to know that there is at least a world of expression in Coptic, in Syriac, in languages which are not Greek and Latin, that this great richness is out there. And also, I think uh, um, 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 it's important to know that, um, no, I I don't quite have the concept, but the, the, the feeling that things are, are are out there just as the past is there the languages of the past of the past are there
0: so it strikes me access and engagement with the source material obviously this is the bread and butter of being part of the field either one does the work or one doesn't in terms of the 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 requisite tools your your larger point and you may have seen me nodding my head vigorously while you were making this point regarding the dialogue and the ability to engage in a wider scholarly dialogue. Sometimes when I speak to Poland-based scholars of US history, I think to myself, oh goodness, (laughs) should I simply be discouraging them from writing in Polish at all? Because that, it's an extreme example, right? No US historian based in the US will learn Polish to engage with East European colleagues. But on the other hand, I was struck uh, in your description of your travels in Iran in, was it 1974, uh, (laughs) that you were lecturing and engaging your audience of university students in Farsi. Oh no, only
1: only in the hot debate that Oh, there's... so it was
0: for the QA.
1: Okay, it was for the discussion. QA. No, 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 no. I wouldn't dream of of <laughs> ma- of massacring a beautiful language like that. But the
0: Q itself was quite the Q&A
1: intense. The was very well. That was quite an event, and, and if
0: I may, if I may put it this way, so so for 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 background, of course, for those listening, this was several years prior to the Iranian Revolution. Yeah. Uh, the there was this, a political subtext which became clear from your description of the event that. I suppose you had been interpreted as being insufficiently critical of the Shah, uh, by virtue of analogy, something like
1: that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was obviously regarded as a tame professor shunted along through the the British Council, another colonial power. I had I had everything in me to annoy those 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 young men, and they were annoyed, and they they told me so, and I hope I told them back.
0: I was struck in part, though, and I think this is partly also why I got the 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 sense that that you had engaged so intensely in in, in Farsi there that you were you did conduct the discussion and when there was a noise in the auditorium you were able to Yes. Make your presence felt. And, right. and the reason why I bring that up is that dialogue, of course, isn't just a matter of uh, of, uh, of several score academic journals, even if you can reach out there. So, this is the, the, the actually, I, I apologize. All of that was a bit of a prefatory remark to the question I'm going to pose now, which is thinking in terms of pedagogy and thinking in terms of communication, even in our mediatized, superficial, frequently superficial age of uh, tweets and other social media communication, being able to reach it, different demographics in those other languages is inimitable. And in that sense, I, I, I suppose I'm scratching my head wondering how we can take the wonderful example that you were describing and translate it to 21st century realities. It's not so much a question necessarily to which I expect an answer as a a hope that others in a situation like you found yourself might be able actually to engage instead of hiding behind whoever, you know, But you, you, you were there. You spoke to them. Uh, you, you. Anyway, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, I, I think it's it's extremely important. I think that one must not lose certain certain things. That is, we have to continue the teaching of modern languages and of. Foreign languages. One very obvious reason is we never know which part of the world may not suddenly become um, 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 interesting, often interesting for appallingly bad, for appalling reasons. But there we were. I was appalled by the way in which immediately after the Cold War ended, Russian studies just plummeted. It was an example of a misplaced presentism, that you have to wait for a major culture to become a great nuisance before you bother to learn their language or to read their literature. This was presentism at its most odious. And the slow building up of Eastern European studies all over America is an example of how much you you can lose by simply cutting down, cutting down teaching, cutting down purchase of books in libraries, cutting down hiring. So that's a fairly obvious warning cry. But again, I think what one is dealing with is something that lies behind this, which is the training of the imagination as well as simply the mind, we really have to persuade young people to jump out of their own skins, if only for one hour a week. And if you can manage to do that, you have you have succeeded. And if you do it through languages, that's one way. There are many. There are many um, other ways, but the important thing is to. Really, if only for a very short time, to breathe air other than one's own. Uh,
0: forgive me for dwelling on 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 your trip to Iran, but on this point specifically, I also was quite struck by your your account. Reads as historical ethnography. Now, I have to say, right, this is a pre-revolutionary and quite quite detailed the 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 notes from your from your your travels, but. It seemed, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I actually think this is quite an important point also for my own sense of how late antiquity has evolved as a field. I have dear friends who are uh, interested in uh, Islamic studies in the context of late antiquity, work in it. And it seems to me that that is really the bread and butter of the future of late antiquity studies in so many ways. You described getting a sense of Islam as a living religion. And in that context, I wanted to ask maybe a little bit of Peter Brown, the ethnographer, a little bra- a bit of Peter Brown, the historian of religion, although the two are obviously not at, in any way exclusive. Where does inside knowledge or intimate knowledge of religion factor in? for a historian of religion. In some sense, I suppose this takes us back to the the, uh, rejection or at least complication of grown-up history, but the idea that religious belief or appreciation for the religious belief of others must play some role, acknowledged or unacknowledged, in, in one's approach as a historian
1: to religious history. Yes, I think that the way I would answer it, partly, is there's a, one must always leave a lot of room and encourage simply curiosity, simply the culture of curiosity, this sense that you are beside people who are different from yourselves. There, I think, my Protestant experience in a Catholic island was invaluable I always had a major world religion on my doorstep of which we knew pathetically little just as our Catholic neighbors knew pathetically little about us and to to as a way jump over that that, that fence to look over the fence to realize that when when people what it was to pass a chapel and to cross oneself on top of the number eight bus, to see a line of chapels lining all the way from Dorky to Dublin, each of them with a grand facade, each of them with the red light of the Holy Sacrament burning in them, each of them which people would raise their hats or cross themselves, that was simply Something which you had to learn to to understand, and I think to to learn to understand Islam is very was a very similar experience. And ultimately, what one learns is how is how to worship, not just that people do worship, but how to worship, what it means for them. Um, I think here that is where the personal religiosity and the public academic respect for religions do does in many cases converge. Con, con, con,
0: Thanks very much. I, I, we'll, be, we'll be coming to the end of our conversation soon, unfortunately. It's such, such an incredibly rich book. We, we, I, I wish I had hours to speak with you about it. I, I did want to, just apropos still of the point on religion, there are so many figures whom you engage in the book, some as intimate friends, some as colleagues or perhaps colleagues from afar who inspired you so much. Uh, and, and then some were figures who were simply looming. Uh, C.S. Lewis, for example, right? I mean, I, I think you mentioned you you, heard, you saw him twice, didn't speak to him, but he was there. And his presence very much dictated uh, a part of the ethos. So if I may maybe draw, choose Lewis on the one hand and then from the other end of the book's trajectory Michel Foucault uh, as a figure <laughs> who i i i i i mean, there's so many vivid descriptions of the book but i really enjoyed your descriptions of encountering him uh well of the conversations over beer with him in berkeley and then uh, at his home in paris uh, do you feel that the the i mean i suppose i'd phrase it this way the experience that you had, that you've had in the course of your career, uh, with figures for whom there's a sort of ethos that emerges. I, I hate to sort of. Uh, i don't want to call it an ism right but but there's a the the i've encountered so many readers of c.s lewis who are in so many ways disconnected from the context you describe and i'm not talking about the the fiction <laughs> i'm talking about the those who fight would seek to find a path to religion and likewise when i was in graduate school the cult of foucault was still very much in its heyday uh Do you find that as the years passed and as you were writing this book, those figures seemed more, I don't want to say commonplace, but simply like a gathering of part of a gallery of friends, or that there was a certain uh, continued, let's call it uh, fire, animating their, their presence in your mind?
1: Oh, they definitely loomed. And there's a lot to be said for looming. That is, it really challenges you. But there are people out there who have entire worlds in their imaginative, in their imagination, in their own worlds. And one doesn't like hero worshiping. Um the cult of, of Foucault I found vaguely ridiculous at times, but at other times, no. And I certainly, in the case of Foucault, what what I allowed in my own in my own imagination, my contact with him to loom was his extraordinary candor, his extraordinary ability to adopt the the learning position when he was faced with issues of, say, medieval. Or Augustinian's theology, who really felt he he dropped things, is decent, and, and that is the Foucault which I remember, and the Foucault who had that extraordinary ability to ask the one question nobody else had thought of of um, asking, and um, in in that case, I think one. One, one must not have a hagiography, but one must have a sort of a list of people who loom. I would add to this list, actually, more closely and more concerned with my own interests, would be, of course, Foucault's friend, Pierre Ardo, and his other paradoxical friend, Paul vain. you couldn't have thought of people more different from from, from from each other, yet they made up a loom, a sort of voice of French scholarship of the 1980s at its very best, and that was very good.
0: Thank you. I'd be remiss if by way of uh, of bring our conversation toward a close, I didn't return to the other figure so to speak, looming throughout your career and throughout the book, of course, Augustine, uh, I, I, by way of asking perhaps a, a question that may seem too simplistic, and if so, please feel free to answer whatever version of it you like. And I think my question would go something like this. It seems from the the description, but also the, the bibliography you really bring to life. And I, I should say for, for the, the listeners that, Reading this book is not just about discovering the individuals or the trajectory of Peter's life and career, but also about bringing the works to life. So, uh, it, it it is historiography in the most living and uh, agency-driven sense that that I I, I, I think I've ever encountered. But that you brought the historiography of Augustine to life in a way that if if I remember correctly, you put it as Augustine in the age of Augustine, or the age in Augustine, where it wasn't simply a collection of disconnected elements, but rather a holistic approach. So the question that I would ask now is, do you feel that you would want to say more still, looking? surveying what what, what you have said, both in this book and more generally, uh, regarding Augustine? Or do you feel like he has been comfortably represented, but also challenged, complicated? Uh, Please take that any way you like, that question. Thanks.
1: Well, uh, yes. Um, I think the obvious scenario is that I mount a time machine and ask him, ask him um, a question, and the question which I would ask would be, what did he think of the future? That does not mean the biblical or theological future, but what his world would be like in 50 years. That's one of the great unsolved mysteries. One can easily ask Constantine, for instance, was he a Christian or was he not? What I would have liked to ask him would be the same question. What did he think the world would be like in 50 years? Um, I think that our knowledge of Augustine has actually, in recent years, expanded exponentially. Digitalization has rendered it much more easy to, but to trace works, sermons, letters, which we had a sense existed but couldn't tie down. Um, Our knowledge of the social circumstances of Roman North Africa, work of people like Yves Mauderan for the Berbers, Bred Shaw for the world of Augustine's own conflict with the Donatus. We, We really have God's plenty, Things which I would have killed to have in 1963, 64, 65, they're there. And what I what I would love to know now is what Augustine himself thought and those around him, and how and how is it that his thought came to dominate Western. Western Europe in ways which at the time could not be foretold. I think that is why Augustine's view of the future might well have been an incorrect view, but it would have been very revealing.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I. I'm sorry to say we'll have to bring our conversation to a close but I'm enormously grateful to Peter Brown for being our guest today uh, to talk about his new book Journeys of the Mind A Life in History which appeared this year 2023 with Princeton University Press Peter thank you so much
1: Thank you very much Peter I I really couldn't have talked with a more open and helpful um, interviewer. That's enormously kind. Thank you. Ian Foster once said of an English old lady who said, I don't know what I think till I hear what I say. And you have provoked me to hear what I say. And I thank you very much. But
0: I'm enormously grateful to you, Peter. I'm enormously grateful to the audience. uh, And I strongly hope that uh, everyone listening will reach for Journeys of the Mind. Uh, Wishing all a good afternoon.
1: Nice. goodbye.